I love those sounds. Well, good morning. Oh, beloved, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady for leading us in worship this morning. I want to give special thanks as well to those who volunteered for Vacation Bible School this week. What a wonderful time it was. Over 30 children in attendance every night with faithful brothers and sisters from Harrison Hills and our mission team from Fisherville Baptist pouring out the gospel to these kids. Our thanks to you all. It was wonderful. Well, as you opened your Bibles, we often remind ourselves what we can know about the word we hold in our hands. And we're often reminded that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, and that it is all sufficient. But lest these become just words, a reminder for us what these terms mean. Because each one is critical. Each one has been a hard-fought category that has been under continuous assault from every corner. So lest we gloss over these terms, let us look at them anew to refresh what we know. What does it mean, first, that the Bible is inspired? Well, the inspiration of Scripture simply means that God divinely influenced the human authors in such a way that what they wrote was the very Word of God. When we talk about what it is, what uh, when we talk about it as it relates to Scripture, the word inspiration simply means God breathed. And of course, this spelled out in Paul's second letter to Timothy, those famous verses, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that you, man of God, and you, woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have watched as the doctrine of inspiration has been attacked or watered down through various strains of theological liberalism. The most common attacks first being that Well, Scripture is only inspired as far as its religious teachings go. Anything that's not specifically spiritual or religious is not inspired. Another attack is that Scripture is not inspired word for word, but merely thought for thought, or just in its general concepts or general ideas. But of course, this is not what Scripture teaches about itself. Peter writes in his first epistle, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes well beyond the the thought for thought or the conceptual inspiration of, of Scripture, but he declares the word for word inspiration. Jesus proclaims, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law. It is fully inspired by God, down to the very punctuation. Now, Some have even advocated for what we call a dictation view of Scripture, basically meaning that the writers of Scripture were essentially glorified secretaries. They're just taking down what God was dictating to them. And in some places, we do see this, where God commanded the author, hey, write this down. 
But the majority of it is not written that way at all. Nor did God turn the authors of scriptures into automatons or put them into a trance-like state to write, as we see in so many things like Mormonism. The writers all had their own personality and style, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. There's so much more we could say on the inspiration of scripture, but we fight and we contend for it, that each and every word is inspired. God breathed. So what else? The Bible is inerrant. Boy, is that one loaded, right? That's worthy of a whole series by itself. Some of you may remember back in the 70s, it was labeled the battle for the Bible. And the end result was what became known as the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And that was signed by such men as R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Josh McDowell, J.I. Packer. It was a battle royale to take back the Bible, as it were, from the theological liberalism that was invading every area of higher education, every seminary, every denomination, everything, claiming that the Word of God contained error, that it was not inerrant. And of course, this chopped at the very foundation of Christian life and of Christian thought. It was a slow acid, and it shipwrecked the faith of many If the Bible, as it was originally written in the original autographs, contains error, what do we have? Answer? Ultimately, nothing. Nothing that is conclusive and authoritative over my life or yours. Nothing that makes a demand on our lives that I must submit myself to this word as it is the word of God. And by the way, beloved, that's exactly the point, isn't it? People don't want to be told there's someone they must give an account to. If it has error, I don't have to listen to it. And I'm free to live how I please. The the declaration that it is by this and only this inerrant word that I may know God, that I may know the exclusive path to reconciliation with God, that the word as it was written by the authors, given by God, is without error, is a great offense to those who desire to do away with absolute truth. And any word declaring that they will give an account. Beloved, if the Bible contains error, the entire thing needs to be thrown out. In for a penny, in for a pound. It rises and it falls on itself. And this is why men have labored through the centuries to disprove this sacred writing in any little way. The prophecy of it, the internal logic of it, the historicity of it, the historical accuracy of it. If they can find a chink in the armor, the whole gig is up. To this day, no such charge can be made. The signers of the Convention on Biblical Inerrancy back in the 70s, they knew the inevitable end to conceding inerrancy. It was a speedway to a full rejection of Scripture. And the practical meaning to us this morning is that you could trust the book you're holding in your hands. Now, is that book, physical book, that you're holding right now inerrant? No. That's a copy, right? That's a translation. However, we know from biblical and textual scholarship, centuries in the making, that what we have today is absolutely in agreement with the inerrant original autographs. So can you trust it? Yes. It was written inerrantly, and it has been recorded with incredible precision and incredible care 
ever since. So praise the Lord. His word is inspired. It's inerrant. It's also infallible. While inerrant means that it's free from error, without error, infallible means that it's incapable of error, that it won't fail. I think each of us can testify to that. And finally, it is all sufficient. To say that the scriptures are all sufficient means that the Bible is all we need to equip us for a life of faith and service. Just as the inerrancy of Scripture came under brutal attack, a new frontal assault has been opened of late, and it has been deadly. They say, now, okay, well, maybe it is inspired. Okay, maybe it's inerrant. Okay, maybe it's infallible, they say. But that doesn't mean that there isn't more to know or a better way to do things. The implication being that the Bible doesn't actually contain all we need for a life of faith and godliness. Here is what makes this one of the most insidious attacks yet. Because this attack comes not from outside forces. The attack on the sufficiency of Scripture is largely coming from inside the church. Church growth models, secular management techniques, worldly methods for drawing crowds, promoting entertainment over exposition, the explosion of extra-biblical revelations, extra-biblical revelations, meaning our churches are full of, quote, God told me. I'm sorry to tell you, dear saint, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Say, how dare you? How dare you? How do you know that? It was John Owen, one of the greatest theologians in history, that said, quote, if private revelations, meaning extra-biblical revelations, agree with Scripture, they are unnecessary. And if they disagree, they are false. Meaning, what if whatever God told you agrees with His Word, it was unnecessary for Him to tell you. He already spoke it. And if it disagrees with His Word, it is false. Either way, Scripture is sufficient. I don't need to hear a booming voice from heaven in my ear. I have his word. Beloved, understand, it's not that God doesn't speak. It's that God has spoken. I think it was Justin Peters equipped one time, if you want to hear God speak to you, read your Bible out loud. This was a battle all the way back to the Reformation. This is why one of the five solas is sola scriptura meaning Scripture alone. Now, does the Bible tell us anything about performing brain surgery? Does it tell us anything about how to build a bridge or to build a microchip? No. This is not what all sufficiency means. But all things pertaining to life and godliness, it does. In other words, if the Bible speaks about it, it is sufficient for that topic. That's what that means. And we are given all the topics we need to not only know how we might be reconciled to God, but how to then live a life pleasing to the Lord, to know where we came from. We know where we're going. We know how it all began. We know how it all ends. It's all here. We can make sense of the world around us, the pain, the hurt, the suffering, the evil. We can explain love, the universe. We can explain the meaning of life. Why we're here spitting on this blue orb in space. The Bible is sufficient for every topic it speaks to. We do not need to add anything to it. It doesn't need our help to make it palatable to a lost world. It doesn't need our defense. It is more than capable 
of defending itself. Of course, that reminds us of the very famous quote by Spurgeon, that quote, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let a lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Praise the Lord. We have an inspired, inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word that we might know him with all surety this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we looked to part one, our final series of the fig tree and the doorkeeper, as we at long last wrap up our series on last things today. Beloved, I pray that it's been a time of tremendous blessing and learning, a time of hope and expectation for a returning Lord, of a risen and conquering King, that we have a renewed sense of urgency to share Christ with a world in desperation. As we look to Jesus' final exhortation, concluding his longest answer ever given, of course, he uses the parable. The parable. And recall that a parable literally means to cast alongside something else. Jesus' parables were stories that were cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth. As extended analogies or, or inspired comparisons, they taught us the truth in ways that we could grasp. A parable is often known as a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And we had just such an event last week with our parable of the fig tree. And Jesus opened with that, giving the expectation that we learn. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, Jesus said. These are principles and truths and realities that are meant to be understood. Christ would not tell us to learn something unlearnable. Scripture exhorts us to read and understand because it is understandable. But sometimes it takes work. Sometimes it takes work. Many of you have shared how challenged you have been through this series of last things that we must press in for that understanding. We must do the work. We must engage the hard yards, and we will grasp it. We can learn the parable from the fig tree. And so we did. And beloved, we read and we apply our study of the end times issues the same way we read and study the rest of our Bible. We read it first literally, meaning that the word means what it says. It's not allegorized or spiritualized. We read it also historically, meaning we look at the events and the time in which they happened and how the people would have understood these words or events. In other words, if the original audience hearing this would not understand it that way, then we've missed the correct understanding. And we read it grammatically, meaning we look at the immediate sentence and paragraph within that phrase where it's found. And finally, we look at it contextually, right? We know that. Zoomed out, we look at it where it sits in its, its timeline of redemptive history. And then we zoom in and we look at what type of book is it in? How do we read it, for example? A, a wisdom book versus an epistle or a narrative like the Gospel of Mark. And then we zoom in even further to the chapter, then to the verse, and then to the word. Beloved, I hammer this home because... Well, so many tend to abandon this method of study and reading when it comes to end times, to eschatology. And it yields confusion and faulty assumptions and thus, well, misapplication to our lives. 
So happily, by employing our literal, historical, grammatical, and contextual reading, it told us who the parable of the fig tree was written to. That the intended audience are the saints alive during the time of the tribulation. And recall that Jesus is not only speaking to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that God has protected, but he's speaking to those who have come to faith in Christ during the time of the tribulation and were able to escape the slaughter and the persecution. He's speaking to those who listened to the preaching of the 144,000. They listened to the angel proclaiming the gospel in the midheavens. They listened to the two witnesses. And they want to know how this is all going to end. It's a time unimaginable. God, when will evil be crushed? When will the unrelenting persecution end? And Jesus tells them when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. You being the tribulation saints, these things being every event we've spoken of for the last six months in verses 6 through 23. And when you see those things, when you see the abomination of desolation, lift up your head. Your redemption is close. So it's critical to have our categories correct, right? To read our Bibles with a consistent method. And even now, it puts our current life, those of us who are alive today, in the right context. You know, people of certain theological persuasions are accused of being headline watchers. Headline watchers. Always trying to discern the signs of the times, the leaves of the fig tree. But we know who that parable is written to. We know, as we read the, uh, theologian Warren Wearsby last week, as Christian believers... Wearsby said today, we are not looking for signs of his coming. We are looking for him. We're looking for him. And finally, Jesus closed his parable with one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture. That heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In a world that seems like it hangs by a thread, when personal circumstances invade our life and they shake our foundation, when the sure things of our life can vanish like a cloud, that God's word stands. We live in a time of overwhelming anxiety, anger, and worry. The Christian need not partake. He is commanded not to partake of the fear and the doubt. It is a firm foundation that has confounded and eluded the greatest of intellects through history. Consider Socrates, considered one of the wisest men to ever live. His very deathbed statement was this, quote, All the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. If only there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail. Perhaps some divine word. Close quote. What a tragedy. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, today we complete at long last the Olivet Discourse, putting a bow on it. As Jesus expands on the parable of the fig tree, we are left with the final exhortation of the doorkeeper. 
One that, while it again is directed at the tribulation saints, it carries vast and direct implication and application to all who hear it, to all who would live in the church age. That's you. So without further delay, beloved, let us look to our final exhortation on the Mount of Olives. Let's look to our text, Mark 13, 32 through 37. Mark 13, 32 through 37. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man, away on a journey, who leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves, each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text this morning. Lord, we want to thank you for the Olivet Discourse for the blessing that has been in our lives in this congregation these past six months. Lord, we ask as we close it that you would leave us with the meaning of the text, that you would leave us with your desire in the text, that we would know it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would meet every need that has presented itself here this morning through the preached word of God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, if any of you have been alive for any amount of time, chances are you've lived to see a new prediction and a failed prediction of the return of Christ. Whether it's a heretical end times paraministry or a, a pseudo-Christian cult, most notably the Jehovah's Witnesses that were known as Russellites back then, people have been practicing the return of Christ, predicting rather, practicing as well, the return of Christ ever since the time Jesus said, no one knows, almost like it was a challenge or something. Yet all of these hundreds of predictions throughout the centuries have actually been a blessing to the true church and to vulnerable sheep, because someone giving a prediction of the date and time of Christ's return is an instant, guaranteed, certified, dead giveaway of a false teacher and a false religion, something from which we should run far and run fast. And why is that? Why is that? Let us open with verse 32. Verse 32, because of that day or hour, no one knows. Verse 32, thank you, brother. In the Greek, that means no one knows. Dug into that. So as we dive into that, let us first look to Jesus' description of that time. Day or hour, day or hour, not year, not generation. We know what generation will see Christ's return. The generation that sees the abomination of desolation occur. But even that generation will not know the exact day or hour. Now, beloved, I'm asking you to put your thinking caps on here. How many of us remember our teaching on the 77s from Daniel? when we taught on the abomination of desolation. Now, it was a fascinating walkthrough, feeling like 
We needed a math degree to do it sometimes, but the juice was definitely worth the squeeze. But a quick recap, because it's going to explain this unknown day or hour. Remember Daniel 9.24, that God has decreed 70 weeks. Daniel records that God declares 70 sevens will fulfill all these things. It's written 70 sevens of years. Now, back of the napkin math told us that that equals 490 years, meaning we have 490 years to wrap up all this business with Israel, full stop. So the question is, how is God going to split up this 490 years to bring this all to a conclusion? Well, if we remember Daniel 9, again, verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in time of distress. So what numbers do we have there? We have seven weeks and 62 weeks. Total together, 69 weeks. How long is 69 weeks? 483 years. 483 years. Remember, a week in Daniel is seven years. A week in Daniel, seven years. So 483 years after the decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, what does it say will happen? Messiah will be cut off. And who remembers how this wonderful, inspired, inerrant word tells us how long will it be between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Messiah? How long was it? It was 483 years. That will even make a Baptist shout. So that leaves seven years left. Seven years. So we used 483 of the 490. What's left? Seven years. Seven left to wrap this up. Seven years for God to finish judging Israel for her sins, to bring about revival in that nation, and to turn them to Messiah, at least one-third of them. That's our seven years of tribulation. Remember again that a week in Daniel represents seven years. So we have one week left. Then we look to Daniel 12. Daniel 12, verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. 1,290 days is how long? That's three and a half years. So we know that halfway through that seven years, the Antichrist will break his facade of peace and he'll make war on the saints for the remainder of that three and a half years. That's easy, right? Well, now hang on, Pastor. We have specific days here that you're talking about. We know exactly what the abomination of desolation looks like. We know exactly what it is. Add 1,290 days to that and I should be able to look to the sky on that day. But Jesus says, I won't know the hour or the day. How can that be? The mass seems pretty airtight so far. The answer is at the end of Daniel chapter 12. Let me read it for you. Isn't it so wonderful when we find the answers in God's word? Daniel 12, 11 through 12, listen to this. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Did you see what happened there? There's an extra 45 days added in there. That's the time Jesus is speaking of. 
Yes, those who know, those who are counting, will know when the 1,290 days expire. And they should be looking for his return at this point. Awake, alert, expectant. But we have 1,335 days. They won't know exactly. They will not know the day or the hour. We have a 45-day gap of the unknown. So back to our text. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, every ear in here should have just perked up. Every inquiring mind should have just perked up. What do you mean that the Son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, how can he not know something? Isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know everything? This is a critical doctrine known as kenosis. Now, don't check out on me. If you get this, so many things that Jesus did and chose not to do will make sense in the gospel. So pay attention. How can Jesus not know when he's going to return and yet calm a storm and heal a leper? How can he hunger for a piece of bread yet walk on the water? You want to understand this? We get this word kenosis from Philippians 2 verse 7, which reads, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The key word there is empty. That's where we get our Greek word for kenosis from. It is the doctrine of Jesus emptying himself at the incarnation. So what does that mean? What exactly did Jesus empty himself of when he left heaven's throne and came to earth in the likeness of men? Well, to first be abundantly clear, when he came to earth, did Jesus empty himself of any of his divine attributes? No. Was Jesus less God at any time? No. Did Jesus trade any of his divinity in exchange for humanity? No. There was no time in Jesus' earthly ministry where he was not fully God. Colossians 2.9 is clear. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Fully God, fully man. 100% God, 100% man. Not 50% and 50% together to make 100. No. A hundred and a hundred. Fancy name for that is the hypostatic union. Write it down. Look it up later. So if if Jesus did not empty himself of any of these things, what did he empty himself of? Paul says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So what Jesus voluntarily emptied himself of was his divine privilege and his divine glory that were his in heaven. Some folks prefer the term laying aside instead of emptying. That would be true to the text. The kenosis was a self-renunciation of divine privilege, meaning a few things. One means I'm not going to use my divinity to make my way easier on earth. I'm going to know hunger. I'm going to know thirst and no pain and no exhaustion. God experiences none of those things, but Jesus laid aside that privilege. But here's what we need to grasp, because we see both privilege and non-privilege on display throughout our time in Mark, don't we, right? If Jesus needs to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, 
no privilege would be to walk around it or to take a boat to the other side. Privilege would be, boom, he's there in an instant. We see both, don't we? We see both of those in the, in the Gospels, numerous ways, all over. So how does that work? Why take a boat one time and suddenly appear over there a different time? Why pick up and lay down divine privilege? Well, here's the key. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I am here to do the will of my Father. I am here to do the will of the one who sent me. So when did he pick back up his privilege? When God the Father told him to. When did Jesus demonstrate omniscience, right? Omniscience having supernatural knowledge, like Luke 6, 8, but he knew their thoughts. John 13, 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. John 18, 4, then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. But yet back in our text this morning, the son does not know when he will return. Why? It's right here in John 15, 15. Here it is in plain English for us. For all things I have heard from my father and I made known to you. Jesus only did what the Father told him to do and showed him to do. And I'm here to do the will of my Father, period. If that means that I pick up my divine privilege to accomplish a task, I do it. If it means laying aside my divine prerogative or privilege, I do it. Now, why do you care about all that, Lanesville 2023? Why do you care? Because without the kenosis... Without Jesus laying aside his divine prerogative and privilege, you and I wouldn't be here this morning. Jesus declared in Matthew 23, 26, Don't you realize that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? I could have 10,000 angels come and take me off this cross. I have legions at my command. That's my privilege. But being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's why you care about kenosis. Without it, we're not here this morning. Saved, set free, worshiping a risen king. So when you see that the son doesn't know at this point when he will return, praise God. (laughs) Praise God. Because it is that same restriction and that same humility and that same obedience that drug a cross of Calvary. But it should be said that the story doesn't end there. Does Jesus know today? Absolutely. In fact, the moment he was raised from the dead, the kenosis was gone. He had taken back up all divine privilege and all divine prerogative. And we see this in Acts 1. The risen Lord, he's speaking with his disciples. Listen closely to what Jesus says. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you were restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, is it? Now? You've you've gone, you've died, you've rose. Okay, we did all that. Now? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs the Father has fixed by his own authority. I know. 
The resurrected Jesus knows, but it's not for you to know. Back to our text, verse 33, verse 33. Excellent. See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Now, as we said earlier in this message, we have the intended target audience, but we also have broad application. The audience is to the believers in the tribulation. Be awake. Stay alert. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. We'll talk about that later. So that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. But for us today, we draw mighty application for this as we wait for Jesus' collection of his church. Now, there are two exhortations we see in verse 33. See to it, or take heed, and keep on the alert. So yes, we know who the intended target here is. However, both of those commands are given in the present imperative, meaning it is continuous for all time. Continually, habitually follow this command is what Jesus is saying, meaning there is application of this for us today. Of course, Paul exhorts us in 1 Thessalonians 1. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So yes, the tribulation saints are to keep alert for the second coming. But present imperative, we are to look for him as well. To be caught up together with him in the sky. And Jesus goes on to give an analogy as he closes out our discourse, that of the doorkeeper. It's wonderful, verses 34 through 37. I'll read them as one. Verses 34 through 37. It is like a man away on a journey who, leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves, each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, beloved, I want us to first notice that we do not begin with the doorkeeper in verse 34. We begin with the owner. We begin with the authority. It's his house. They are his slaves. Boy, could we camp on that for a while. How many Christians are living their life as if it were their own? As if they weren't purchased and ransomed? It's one of the reasons that I love the LSB translation. Other translations didn't want to offend. So they changed the word doulos, which means slave. They changed it to servant. We like that word better. It's softer less problematic. The problem is it doesn't mean servant. 
That's a different Greek word altogether. It means slave. The 21st century church would do well to recapture that. A servant serves at their pleasure. They're free to leave. A slave was bought. If you're a Christian, you were bought. Are you living like someone purchased for a master? Or as a fair-weather servant? Come around when it's convenient for you. It's the owner's house. The owner's slaves. And he's given tasks. Verse 34. It is like a man. What is it? It is the return of Christ. And he's commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. It was the job of the doorkeeper to guard the outer gate of the house. Not only to watch over the house, but to be ready to welcome the master back home. To be alert and awake because the house I watch over matters. My master has commanded me to keep watch. And he is worthy to come home to a wakeful house because it is all about him. It's his house. You're his slave. It's his journey that he both left on and that he returns from. Don't concern yourself with the time. Don't send out a scout trying to figure it out. Don't be clipping out newspaper headlines. Just stay awake. Live in a continual expectation of his return. What J.C. Ryle described as, quote, perpetual preparedness. You do not know whether the master of the, when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. That's covering all the watches of the night. That's the Roman 12-hour watch. That's 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The disciples here, they, they would have envisioned the temple guards here. Indeed, they were looking out over the temple while Jesus was speaking these very words. And they would all know this custom. That the captain of the temple guards would make his nightly rounds. And when he would pass by your station, if you were a doorkeeper, you would rise and you would salute. What about those who were caught sleeping? One of the one, what of the one who awoke to find the captain of the temple guard looking down on their sleeping frame? Well, two things would happen. It's well known, very well known. One, you were beaten. Two, they would burn your clothes. They would burn your garments. Now we read in Revelation 16, 15 earlier. This should make more sense now. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. So that he will not walk about naked. And men will see his shame. That makes sense now, doesn't it? What is it to sleep today, saint? How will we be found guilty of this? Beloved, sleep is to reside in a place of spiritual laziness. It's to be indifferent to the things of God, of His people, and of His church. It's to give all of these things second place in your life and in your heart. To not keep yourself razor sharp. To be disheveled when the Master returns to His home. Unkept. Snap to. Church of God. Beloved, while you're sleeping, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking to destroy. Destroy you, destroy your master's house. And while we are beguiled, while we're lulled to sleep, eyes heavy, caught up with the cares of the world, our gaze turned off of heaven and its reward, and turned on the things that perish and rust, gazing at their own navel instead of looking to the sky. Plunder awaits. Plunder awaits. And the master will return from his journey. Let him return to a doorkeeper found faithful. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Understand, beloved, Jesus did not give us signs of coming judgment. He didn't give us the Olivet Discourse or the book of Revelation so that we could chase headlines, so we could try to chart and plot out our future. It's meant to keep us awake. It's meant to spur us on into evangelism with fear and trembling, snatching some from death. Because you know what awaits them now. You've been here for the last six months. It's meant to show us the gravity of sin and the consequences of it. It's meant to encourage the beleaguered saint that every wrong is going to be made right. That there comes a day when the evil will stop. Where it seems to run rampant around us, we barely want to turn on the news. That a day is coming when righteousness will dwell. That the light of the Lamb will be our sun. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. And what I say to you all, Stay awake. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we all know that in some way in each of our lives, we have allowed our eyes to grow heavy. Lord, that we have allowed sleep to overtake us. That we have been allowed to look left and to look right. That our gaze has been averted off the glory that is your return. Off the glory that is heaven and our eternal reward. Lord, we desire to be found faithful, whatever that means. Lord, we ask that you would purge and refine that in our life which puts us to sleep. Lord, we ask that we would be awakened as a church, revived, renewed, and set on your word, and set on your coming, looking to the sky, Lord, even as we give you glory now. We pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty name.